When it comes to talking about fish and talking about water in California, and yeah, those two are clearly related, our go-to guy is activist Dan Bacher. And at this point, we're going to bring Dan back to talk about the Delta smelt and salmon, two topics which I know are near and dear to his heart. Welcome back to Radio Parallax, Dan. Glad to be back. And I'm going to talk about two of the things that I'm most passionate about, um, the Delta smelt and salmon populations. So let's let's outline this for people. As as my as I understand it, the Delta smelt was the kind of the keystone fish in California's great vast uh, estuary, uh, the sort of the bottom of the food chain, and yet it seems to have disappeared from the scene. Right. Um, for the fourth year in the row, the California Department of Fish and Wildlife has caught zero Delta smelt in its fall midwater trawl survey on the Sacramento-San Joaquin River Delta. The smelt was once the most abundant fish in the entire estuary, and it numbered in the millions before state and federal water projects started exporting large quantities of Delta water to agribusiness in the San Joaquin Valley and Southern California water agencies. And this fish is found only in the Delta, and it's considered an indicator species because it shows the health of the entire Delta ecosystem. Which is obviously very bad if the fish has disappeared. Right. And the 2021 sampling season began on September 1st of 2021 and was completed on December 16th. And it ended just after the U.S. and Fish and Wildlife Service and the California Department of Fish and Wildlife, along with the Bureau of Reclamation and the California Department of Water Resources, experimentally released 12,800 hatchery-raised delta smelt into the delta for the first time. Is there, any, is there any expectation that could bring the fish back? There's a possibility it could, and they say that the purpose of this Delta Smelt Project is to, quote, benefit conservation of the species through studies of experimental release of captively produced fish into a portion of its current range. The whole collapse of Delta Smelt population is an indication of a larger problem this is uh, some statistics that were compiled by Bill Jennings of the California Sport Fishing Protection Alliance, but he says between 1967 and 2020, the state's forward midwater trawl abundance indices. Now, when it, indices, we mean relative measures of abundance. And that's for striped bass, delta smelt, longfin smelt, American shad, split tail, and threadfin shad, they've declined by, uh, and this is respectively, 99.9%, 100%, 
is a bellwether because it lives entirely in the estuary in fresh and brackish water. Unlike these other fish and salmon and steelhead that travel to and from the ocean through the San Francisco Bay and through the delta to go up into the Sacramento River, San Joaquin River, and their tributaries. Well, this sounds like an eco-catastrophe of the first order, and why is this happening? Do we, do we know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there, there, there's a number of, of factors that have been revealed in what the scientists call the pelagic organism decline, or POD, when they first began to see this really dramatic collapse of fish populations, even though there were some uh, big water years, and this was back in 2005. The major factors are, number one, the changes in the Delta ecosystem caused by diversions and water exports. Number two would be toxics, and number three would be endangered species. Those are the top three, and also factor in um, pollution from from cities, um, badly treated God. municipal discharge, you know, other factors. I mean, ocean conditions, for instance, affect uh, what happens with the striped bass and the sturgeon and also the salmon and steelhead. But in terms of these pelagic species in the delta, the, the, if there's one factor that, that can be blamed um, among all the factors, it's the water exports from the delta that's completely changed the ecosystem. Good God. Let me ask you, there was much talk in recent years about the, well, under Jerry Brown anyway, the Bay Delta Conservation Plan, and better known as the Twin Tunnels. Gavin Newsom came on board and said he didn't like the idea of twin tunnels, but one tunnel was okay with him. Yeah. Can, can you sound off about on that a little bit? Yeah, essentially, that's a greenwashing project, which is supposedly supposed to fulfill the two co-equal goals of water supply and ecosystem restoration, but it really, the only reason it really exists is for water supply, to make sure that the water contractors get their water. Now, the problem is, is there's a thing called climate change, <laughs> drought, and massive fires and, and changes that are happening, and you know our reservoirs haven't been filling to capacity recently because of this this change um, brought it by global warming. So it's kind of a ridiculous project in many ways. But what it aims to do is expedite the export of water um, to water contractors in the San Joaquin Valley and Southern California Water Agency. My understanding is they want to put a big giant straw up near Hood somewhere, yes. suck out the fresher water higher upstream, so as we get more intrusion of salt water lower in the delta, it won't be hurting anybody uh, downstream who's getting the water shipped to them. That's the, the basic idea. But the problem is, is that the existing pumps will continue to run even when the uh, Delta Tunnel is in, would be in place. Oh, really? There's no shifting. It's just we're just it's just no, an no. It's just re, it's it's what what it's it's giving them different options. At certain times they can rely on the old pumps, and other times 
they can uh, use the the new pumping facilities that will be brought about um, through the new project. And it's basically to benefit agribusiness because that they get the majority of the water, but also water agencies in Southern California and some in the Bay Area. Every scientist that's ever commented on it, independent scientist anyway, has basically said this would be an ecological disaster and would make a really bad situation that's happening now even worse. Let's talk salmon. I know that's a subject near, very near to your heart. You published something recently showing that um, an inspection of what the salmon are eating is radically changing of late out of necessity because I guess the Delta smell and other things aren't available to them. Um, how's it looking for salmon? Okay, well, salmon, first of all, I don't think they ever ate Delta smelt okay. because when the time when they'd be going downstream, they would be too small. And then when they come up, they don't eat once they get into fresh water. I stand corrected. Um, but other species used to feed on them. But, you know, people, you know, somebody said, well, the striped bass are eating eating the Delta smelt, you know. And I, I said, what are you talking about? Young Delta smelt are, are, are extremely rare, I mean, virtually extinct. And the striped bass have declined to the lowest numbers ever recorded. And all these species are victims. Uh, of this collapse, and the salmon are right in there with it, and the situation is so bad with the with the drought and with the water exports over the years that last year the California Department of Fish and Game had to take all of its hatchery salmon and put them either in salt water in San Francisco Bay or outside the Golden Gate um, off or off the Marin coastline, just right inside the bay, or to uh, float, floating pens that they have in Half Moon Bay Harbor and in, uh, I think it's Monterey Harbor. It used to be Santa Cruz. So, so that's how bad the situation is. Well, were those salmon then know to swim upstream like normal salmon would, not having made the trip down? Well, most of them make it up. Okay. Um, but as they get uh, the ones that are released on the river from further up river, uh, many hundreds of miles up at Coleman National Fish Hatchery on Battle Creek, uh, there's been a real problem um, when they're re- released on the ocean. They tend to stray a lot. And all these fish stray, they're naturally salmon stray, particularly when you get a big rain like we had in October and then uh, more rain like we had in December when the rivers go up, uh, and particularly the creeks flood, then salmon go up there thinking, because it's a thing that triggers them to go mm. up river. You know, the fall run Chinook is almost entirely made up of, of uh, hatchery fish now, or hatchery fish that spawn wild in the river, and the wild fish that, you know, rear and spawn naturally in the river, they're listed under Endangered Species Act. Those two subspecies, or uh, runs, actually, as they call them, of uh, spring run chinook and winter run chinook, they've declined, you know, precipitously in recent years, and there was a massive die-off of fish on Butte Creek because PG&E wouldn't release cold water when it was most needed 
last August and September. And so they they had a record run. Finally, they, they, they had a run that was coming back of all wild fish. What everybody talks about, what all the agencies say they're trying to save, and they ended up taking no action and letting most of them die. 14,000 out of the estimated 18,000 to 20,000 died before spawning. I'd add that the winter run Chinook really experienced severe fish kill, too. According to the Department of Fish and Game, there was only 2.6% of the juvenile winter run survived last year. In other words, most of them never got downriver or to the ocean. Yikes. What what can listeners that find this alarming do about it? What, what, what would you have people do? What they can do is they can sign up for an organization that works on restoring the fish, like the California Sport Fishing Protection Alliance, Golden State Salmon Association, Restore the Delta, and there's numerous others, but those are three of the better ones that focus on fish. Okay. Or or focus on, on restoring the estuary and habitat conditions so that fish can return. Oh, and final question I'd have for you, as I know you've made mention of the fact that in uh, in Alameda Creek, which is one of the larger, uh, maybe the largest, I'm not sure, of bodies of water that flows into San Francisco Bay, they're trying to build some fish ladders to restore the ability of, of steelhead and salmon to work their way back up. Right. The Alameda Creek Alliance is been working with the local agencies for years, and they just unveiled at the end of April, a, uh, I think it was April 25th, a new fish ladder so the fish can get up through all those obstructions that were built. Back in the, well, in the, in the 50s, that creek still supported runs of salmon and steelhead that people fish for. Right. My my dad used to get him back in the day, but uh, it's been a long time since anybody's seen a fish in Alameda Creek. They've had fish go up there, and they're probably strays because there's no way of fish getting downstream. But they're removing those dams in their process of being in the back, so that's a, that's a good thing. All right. I, I, you know, I would add regarding the, the diet of salmon is that it shifted from a more diverse diet in the ocean, krill, which is small shrimp, and um, juvenile rockfish and a lot of different forage fish to most and anchovies to mostly anchovies now. So it's much less diverse of a so- food source that they uh, feed upon now. That's not cause for uh, alarm yet, I guess, or is it? N- no, because they got they got they got plenty of food. The, okay. the salmon, the ones that are being caught in the ocean right now are very healthy looking. Okay. The problem is getting up the rivers. All right. So you know, so they don't get cooked. Well, Dan, we need to have you come on again in some future time and talk about this uh, this so-called solution to California's water problems, which is just build reservoirs everywhere, but, yeah. but not today. Okay. Thanks a lot. All righty. Okay, bye-bye. All day I face the barren waste without the taste of water, cool water. All right, we um, talk, I think, a little bit about COVID, something we have not addressed for a while. 
We talked about wishful thinking in the last segment, and there's certainly been an awful lot of that associated with the COVID epidemic. In fact, although it appears that we are in a sixth wave of, of one variety or another of, of that virus, a lot of folks would like to just assume that we're not. Writing last week in the Washington Post, Rachel Rubin said most Americans don't realize it, but COVID's back. A new highly transmissible subvariant of Omicron BA2121 has evolved to evade prior immunity and is rapidly spreading across the country. The number of new reported infections in the U.S. has climbed back to more than 100,000 a day. And because most people do not report their home tests, experts say the number could be 500,000, maybe a million new cases a day. Deaths in this silent surge are still relatively low, about 350 a day. But hospitalizations have risen by more than 20% over the last two weeks. Aaron Prater writing in Fortune said, even though no one wants to admit it, the U.S. actually is in the midst of a sixth wave. By standards, the Centers for Disease Control abandoned in March. At least 63% of the country has such high levels of infection that people should be returning to indoor masking. Meanwhile, mask mandates and other precautions have vanished. Booster campaigns have faded. And most Americans have concluded the pandemic is all but over. Predictably, Rupert Murdoch organizations like the New York Post, he also produces Fox, of course, say voluntary masking is fine, but let's not return to the bad old days of mask mandates. Yeah, the bad old days of using appropriate epidemiologic methods to stop a disease spread. Yeah, let's, let's not do that. Good Lord, no. You just have to quote just simple, logical, sensible words coming from Melanie Schreiber in The New Republic, who said, too many people are falling into binary thinking about COVID, that precautions are either 100% effective or useless. Masking, ventilation, vaccination, and testing won't eradicate the virus, but they're proven highly effective tools for preventing its spread and reducing the possibility of endless waves that may repeatedly infect us all with unknown consequences. And I'm looking at a piece from last year, from June of 2021, a year ago, at which point we were 17 months in the disease's presence here in America. Peace noted that COVID-19 vaccines are now widely available, but vaccine skeptics are refusing them. Inevitably, some of them have died, leaving survivors with complicated grief. The piece in question has a woman holding up a sign that said, do not feel pressure to vaccinate if you don't want to. And of course, we can look back now to, I think, better assess the, the true cost of such viewpoints. The New York Times took a look at what they did down in Australia and came to some startling conclusions. Damien Cave, writing in the Times, said, with more than one million dead of COVID in the U.S., Australia's success in battling the virus is a painful study in the paths we didn't take. The article notes that if the United States had the same COVID death rate as Australia, about 900,000 lives would have been saved because their death rate was one-tenth ours. Well, why is this? The article notes it seems kind of obvious. Australia restricted travel and personal interaction until vaccinations were widely available. Then they maximized vaccine uptake. They prioritized people who were most vulnerable before gradually opening up the country again. From one outbreak to another, there were some mistakes. But Australia's COVID playbook produced results 
because of something more easily felt than analyzed at a news conference, says the piece anyway. Dozens of interviews, along with survey data and scientific studies from around the world, point to a life-saving trait that Australians displayed from the top of the government to the hospital floor, and that Americans lack trust in science and institutions, but especially in one another. When the pandemic began, 76% of Australians said they trusted the healthcare system, compared to around 34% of Americans, and 93% of Australians reported being able to get support in times of crisis from people living outside their household. In global surveys, Australians are more likely than Americans to agree that, quote, most people can be trusted, unquote. A major factor researchers found in getting people to change their behavior for the common good. And here's the part that really astounds me. Really, this genuinely astounds me. Partly because of their compliance, which kept the virus more in check, Australia's economy has grown faster than America's throughout the pandemic. Remember back in the spring of 2020, when the arguments are being raised over and over and over again that the U.S. economy could not afford, just simply could not afford to have restrictions. Isn't it interesting that Australia, which implemented such restrictions, has an economy that's grown faster than ours has in the same time period? It seemed two years ago that people were just, you know, talking through their hat about how, well, you know, it's just it's going to hurt the economy without being able to have any real assessment of what it was likely to do if we say, had a million people die. Australia really didn't do anything extraordinary in the grand scheme of things. They just put basic epidemiologic precautions into place. And what do you know? It worked. The article notes that the first positive case in Australia appeared on January 25th. Five days later, the CDC confirmed the first human transmission of the virus in the United States. Donald Trump, of course, downplayed the risk. He said, we think it's going to have a very good ending for us. I guess it depends on how you want to define very good ending. And I guess also us, Mr. Merlin points out. It would appear that 900,000 lives were lost unnecessarily thanks to people following the trail that was blazed by Donald J. Trump and allies who insisted that this virus was no big deal. And good Lord, every step along the way, they seem to resist basic epidemiology. You know, I think back to all these people that were, you know, raving that they had a right. It was a restriction of their freedom to have to mask up in public. And, and by the way, you know, people have been assaulting flight attendants when they were asked to do the simple, obvious thing of masking up in an enclosed space. Something very counterproductive about the American attitude. I think we reflected some time back on, on the oddity of... The fact that everywhere they try to put up traffic circles in America, they wind up having to put up stop signs, which defeats, to no small degree, the entire purpose of the traffic circle. Because Americans just don't like the idea of having to go in and assess what the other guy's doing and make accommodations, apparently. I don't know how else to explain it. I've been all over the world and seen the traffic circles seem to work great everywhere you go. They just don't seem to work well here. The article points out that when Australians are asked why they accepted the country's many lockdowns, they also accepted its closed international state borders, they accepted its quarantine rules, vaccination mandates, they all tended to voice a version of the same response. It's not just about me, mate. Well, I have to admit, I added the mate to make it sound more Australian. Anyway, down in Australia, 85% of the total population have received two doses. 
And evidently, 95% of the Australian adults are what are considered fully vaccinated, which we presume is two doses and a booster. In the U.S., the figure is 66%. Writing in USA Today, Rex Hupke said, I totally understand people's COVID exhaustion, but with the virus activity spreading, we need to defend ourselves. Boosting will keep you out of the hospital. Donning a mask is just the ethical, neighborly thing to do. In the Midwest, I see very few masks, he said, in indoor public spaces, and one word comes to mind, selfish. Another word comes to mind to us, dumbass. Three quick final items to close. Scientists have discovered an ant in Africa that apparently is able to successfully treat a wounded comrade with antibiotics. Well, at least when they sense that a an ant is injured, they supply it with some proteins and organic compounds with structures similar to known antibiotics and antifungals. Seems to work. They took a look. Infected ants that received wound care, 90% survived. When they didn't get the wound care, 5% survived. Doesn't that kind of remind you of Australia and the U.S. just a little? One story didn't get much play coming out of China, which is eh, worthy of brief mention, is the fact that if you were taken into isolation and your dog was left behind, the authorities would go in and kill it. Apparently, dog rescue groups spread up uh, in China to try and take care of uh, the abandoned, temporarily abandoned pets. But it wasn't enough. In Shanghai, when locals were quarantined, the authorities authorized pet killing. And finally, if you're thinking about a trip to Africa, and this correspondent uh, is... It's curious to note that Tanzania is now open for business again. It was closed briefly as a precaution against the spread of COVID. The sixth president of the United Republic of Tanzania, Samia Suluhu Hassan, visited the U.S. recently to promote the fact that the country is getting back to normal. Well, at least so wishful thinking has it. There's no doubt that the country is better off in the hands of President Hassan than it was under its previous president, John Magufuli. Magufuli's national strategy on dealing with COVID centered on three days of national prayer, after which he proclaimed the corona disease has been eliminated thanks to God. Nine months later, he died, apparently due to COVID. The official Tanzanian government stance is that it was heart problems. Anyway, the president came here to try and drum up tourism. I'm thinking about taking her up on it. We'll have to see where that goes. Anyway, that about does it. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. Our thanks to Dan Bacher for enlightening us yet again. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your faithful host, Douglas Everett. Thanks to God. Well, maybe not thanks to God, but as Popeye might say, I am what I am.